There is a longing within all of us for freedom, to get out in the open, away from the noise and fears and burdens that hold us captive, to breathe deeply and hear clearly, and to know that we are alive. Created in the image of God, our Creator God wants to meet with us, to bring us into greater freedom, to bring us to places where we can be still and know that He is God. As with all things worthwhile, there's a practice and a rhythm to this meeting. Transformation takes time, it takes effort, it is work, but the most enjoyable type of work. The practices of our spiritual life anchor us and carry us forward. They center us as we navigate the storms of life. When we journey into the great expanse of God's love for us, we are transformed by the rhythms of His grace. Well, good morning, C4. So glad that you've chosen to be with us this morning. I want to say again uh, a big hello to many of you watching or listening online at cottages or here in Ontario around the world. We're glad you're with us. I love words. It's not just because it's what I do for a living. I just enjoy words. And I love watching the interaction between generations when the original word means something to another generation. I'm sure whenever the phrase, it is cool, came out, that it confused the generation before. It's cool. It's awesome. It's cold. I'm sure what you're saying. You know what I'm talking about? Every generation does this. I remember in my generation when we started saying the phrase, man, that is so wicked. And my parents were like, it's satanic, it's dark, like, no, wicked means good. And they were like, right, right, sure. No, don't you understand? That's exactly what wicked means. Wicked means bad. Or later it was like, things are so fat. What are you calling me? Fat? No, P-H-A-T. It means that you're awesome. It's so dope. What, now I'm on drugs and I'm fat? I don't understand what's going on. Every generation does this. But what I love even more is the phrases we use in our culture, and we have no clue where they've come from. We all know subconsciously what they mean because we've grown up, if you have, in this culture with these phrases. And though they come from another place, now they mean something different. Maybe you know these. I'm so fed up because it's so much red tape. You're, you're crying crocodile tears. Blood is thicker than anyone? Right, right. A cat got your? Right. Caught red? Don't throw the baby out with the? You got to eat humble? Give someone the cold, go cold turkey, go the whole nine yards, kick the bucket, let your hair down, more than you can shake a stick at, you're no spring chicken, rule of thumb, things ran amok, saved by the bell, slash, by the way, 25 years ago, the best show on earth for my generation, so I just want to say that. I just want to say, uh, you showed your true colors, sleep tight, don't let the bugs, bugs bite, spill the beans, you're a jaywalker. We use these all the time. And yet they actually come from something else. I was looking at all these phrases this week, and one of the ones we don't use very much anymore, but, but so insightful is, I'm pleased as anyone. 
I'm pleased as punch. And I was like, wow, that means I'm so happy. I'm so excited. And I was like, I wonder where that came from. And then I was shocked and horrified to find out that it's a 17th century puppet show for children. I want you to remember this as I share this, for children. So for my little children, they'd watch this. And there was a puppet named Punch and a puppet named Judy. And Punch would murder Judy every show and be pleased with himself. Hashtag counseling for the whole 17th century. <laughs> Pleased as punch. That's actually what it comes from. Or you ever use the phrase, you got to butter someone? It comes from Hinduism, where Hindus, I've been in India to see this, they throw clarified butter at the gods as, as an offering. Or here's another one, you got to bite the what? This comes, of course, from World War I when in the midst of extreme tragedy and, and carnage, surgeons had no time to give anesthesia, so they'd give a soldier a bullet to bite on because they couldn't administer that, so they'd be distracted by biting the bullet as something terrible was taking place. The one I want to sit on today, though, is that there's something in the room. What's in the room? The elephant's in the room. We use that all the time, right? It's an obvious truth that's either being ignored or unaddressed and maybe it's too risky or no one wants to touch it. And that phrase is used all the time in uncomfortable situations. There's an elephant in the room. Well, the reason why I want to choose that phrase today is this. There's an elephant in the room. There's an elephant in this church. There's an elephant probably in most churches, at least in the West. There's an elephant in many of our homes, and it was Dallas Willard who has helped us so much in this series on spiritual practices who captured that word and brought it home. And he said these words. Listen closely this morning. He said, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It's not the many moral failures we see in the church. No, it's not the financial abuses or the amazing general similarities between Christians and non-Christians. These are only the effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers today is the failure to be consistently learning how to live their lives in the kingdom already among us. And it is an accepted reality. There's an elephant in the church. And the elephant is many of us don't look at all distinct from all of those who have never met Jesus. Many of us have been transformed and changed in bits and pieces, and it's growing. But the truth is, the reason why we decided to do this whole summer series, the reason why we're building a discipleship path for this coming year, the reason why the theme coming this year is kingdom come, is because we as a church will not any longer allow the elephant to stay in the room. We will not do this. Why? Because we are people of the kingdom of God. And if we have encountered the true living God like we supposedly just sang about, there must be a growing holy love distinction. It's interesting, one person said this. It's the definition we've used this whole series, this whole summer. He wrote that the disciplines, the practices, they allow us to place ourselves before God so he can transform us. 
We just sang about this, that the very presence and word of God enacts something called transformation. Transformation is easily said, but transformation is a strong word, a pungent word, a consuming word. See, transformation, like I've preached before, is alteration, change, revolution, renovation, makeover, and conversion. Now, we've looked at all sorts of things this summer. We've wrestled and been invited into confession, uh, prayer, intercession. We've looked at simplicity, uh, worship, fasting, biblical secrecy, celibacy, service, solitude, silence. Last week, we were encouraged to get rid of all blueberry pancakes and come to church, right? Celebration. And then someone yelled out both. I'm with them. But you know what I'm saying. The goal of celebration, gathering together, we, week after week, have been given tools how to place ourselves before the presence of God to be transformed. So much ground has been covered. So much invitation has already been given. Now today we're going to look at another critical spiritual practice for everyday people. Today we're going to look at and learn about and embrace, hopefully, the spiritual practice of study. Now, before half of you turn on your phones and go to Facebook because you don't like study, stay with me. Because this is so important, and it ties much of this whole series together. Let me give you a definition written by another pastor that I think brings home what we need to talk about today. Study is the intentional process of engaging the mind with the written and spoken word of God and the world God has created in such a way that the mind takes on an order conforming to the order upon which it is concentrating. You're like, I need to study that definition to understand it. Okay, here's what this means. The more you study God's work, God's word, and God's world, you should start looking like the author of all of those things. It is conforming to the one you're encountering. See, there is no way that you can encounter God and not be changed. It is just not possible. So at the heart of this call to study is a love and a want and a desire to know one primary thing. This. We don't worship this book, but we are people bound by this book. Yes or no? Oh, that was weak. Yes or no? This is the word of God, and we as Christians for 2,000 years have had a love and a want and desire to know the word of God, because every time we open the word of God, we will encounter the living word of God, who is Jesus. See, that's why our first core value in this church is that we value God's word. Here's how we summarize it. We believe in an honest engagement with the biblical text, understanding and implying it in order to find our place in God's unfolding story and becoming more like Jesus in character and conduct. See, the Bible is God's written word, and it is the ultimate source for our faith, for our life, and how we act, for our practice. Let me say that again. The Bible is the ultimate source for our faith, what we believe, how we act, morals, how we think, how we live. Now, of course, we know that the Bible says that God speaks in other ways beyond the scriptures. He speaks through nature. He speaks through community, Christian community. He speaks when the spiritual gifts are being used. He speaks through reason and experience. We can look back at what scholars call tradition, what the church has done in history, and what other Christians wrote and wrestled with and did, and we can see what the Holy Spirit did back then, and we can learn. All of those are places where God is always speaking 
But the Bible is not the sole source. It is the ultimate source. And why? Because as you read this, you will know and find out what this actually is. If you've got your Bible this morning, virtually or physically, turn to a very familiar small verse. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. See, we need to re-engage and understand what the authors declared about what we're holding virtually or physically in our hands before we get to how we study it. We must know what's in front of us before we engage with it. This is what the Bible says about itself. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture... When Paul was writing this, of course, he was thinking first and foremost of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. But as you read your New Testament, you will realize it actually includes the New Testament. Already at this moment, Peter is referring in his letters to Paul's letters as Scripture. Matthew and Luke are quoting Mark. Matthew and Luke are quoting each other. Paul is quoting Luke. And so the point is, this is a declaration that from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is God's Word to us. It was J.I. Packer, the famous Anglican theologian who lives in Vancouver today, who I think encapsulates the best definition of what all historic Christians believe on the nature of Scripture. Listen to this definition. Please don't get distracted. Christianity, he writes, is the true worship and the service of the true God, humankind's creator and redeemer. It is a religion. It is a faith that rests on revelation. No one would know the truth about God or be able to relate to God in a personal way had not God first acted and made himself known. But God has so acted. And the 66 books of the Bible, 39 pre-Jesus, 27 after, are together, notice this, the record, the interpretation, the expression, and embodiment of his full self-disclosure. God and godliness are the Bible's uniting themes. Now let me remind you of what you've just heard. If God had chosen not to get back to us, If God had chosen to remain distant after we walked from him, we never would have found him because our sinfulness and our spiritual condition was so stark. We are dead. We could not find him. But God, who is holy love, decided to find us back, right? That's the whole point why we're here as Christians. And he is saying, rightly in this definition, that the Bible is the final record, the final interpretation, the final expression and embodiment of his self-disclosure. Want to know who God is? Want to know how to know him? Want to be loved by him? Want to love him back? Want life in this life? Want eternal life? You better read the holy scriptures. That is why the next phrase in 2 Timothy 3.16 is so important. All scripture is what? God breathed. It comes from God. It's a statement about origin. Who is the source of this book? Who is the cause of this book? Who is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this book? Who is the author, foundation, and basis of this book? God himself. God has not written another book. Oh, can I just say that again? God has not written another book. 
He has influenced thousands of books, but God has not written another book. God has revealed himself fully and only through the person of Jesus Christ, the living word, and God fills in the whole story, beginning, middle, and end, through his written word, the Bible. Here at C4, we have a high view of Scripture. Not just are the ideas in this book inspired. No, this book is inspired. And God has given the Bible as a gift to the world to know God, to walk with God, to meet God, to be clarified by God, and then to become like Him. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful, it is helpful, it is practical, it is constructive, it is effective for what? Teaching. When Paul uses the phrase teaching, it means doctrine. It means who is God and what is he about and how has he self-disclosed himself and what is his views on morals. It is a place where we learn about the commands of God, the Christian life, the promises of God, the message of the kingdom, future, past, present. This is how, again, we know God, meet God, and we're changed by God. This is the guidebook for Christian life and teaching. My life verse comes out of this mentality. 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your, your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your here. Watch your life, how you live, and watch your doctrine, how you think. Well, where is that informed from? As the Spirit of God leads me into all truth, this is where it takes place. Not only is all Scripture God-breathed and useful for teaching, it is also useful for correcting us and rebuking us. These are not words that we like, right? These are not encouraging words, and yet they are encouraging. See, this is about worldview. This is about how we think and how we act. This is about how you see the world, how you interpret the world. And the Bible is clear. God is clear that his word has to be the lens, the glasses that we see our families through and our life through and sex through and sexuality through and relationships through and power through and politics through, race, gender, economics, front. But everything is supposed to be seen through the lens of scripture. See, here's the phrase that we're going to wrestle with today. The more you sit under the word of God. The more you sit under the word of God, the more you listen to the word of God, the more you hear the word of God, the more you submit to the word of God, the more each one of us and we as a family will be taught, corrected, and rebuked. And why do we need this? Because the best among us are still tainted by sin. And the best among us are still deeply influenced by family and culture and media. And we must continually ask, who has more power in our thinking? Who has more power in our religious views, theology, gender, sexuality, who has more power, our family upbringing or the scriptures? It's not saying all these things do not have a good voice, but they also must submit to the written word because the living word is the Lord of all. And so this is an upside down kingdom experience because the scriptures become our loving friend. The Bible is given to us to know God to be taught by God, rebuked by God, corrected by God because we're broken. But there's something even more here. We also are being invited into righteousness. Now catch this. We are also called into transformation. 
This is it. This is the reason why we're doing practices. The invitation to follow Jesus in the disciplines is to be transformed, to be made righteous. I love what Philip Tower said when he said, righteousness simply describes an observable Christian life. A life that is God-centered, a life that is God-pleasing, a life that is God-conformed is a life that truly loves the Scriptures. Listen to another verse about the role and nature of Scripture out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates dividing soul, spirit, joint, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible is like no other. The Bible is alive. The Bible is life-giving. As the Holy Spirit hovered over Jesus at his baptism to empower him, let me give this image to you. The Holy Spirit of God hovers over Scripture continually to lead us always back to truth and life and God himself. Every Bible, virtually or physically, no matter the translation, God is always hovering over it by his Spirit, ready to lead us into all truth if we truly are seeking him. Now notice, it says right here that the scriptures will cut you. The scriptures will pierce the outward and the superficial and will run to the very essence of what the Jews called our heart. It cuts cuts and it confronts and heals our wrong thoughts and wrong actions. And let me again say this morning, you can never divorce the written word from the living word spirit. You can never understand the scriptures without the author of the scriptures giving you insight. It's what Jesus promised to all of us in John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into what? Say it loud. What? All truth. The spirit of Jesus Christ is the one who helps you understand the scriptures. Because this isn't just Shakespeare. This is not just a really thought out book, which it is. It's something more going on. This book is God's word to us. And his spirit is the one who leads us into all truth. See, the more you know your Bible, the more you will know God. And the more you know God, the more truth you will encounter. And the more love you will encounter. And the more holiness you will encounter. And the more you come close to the scriptures, you will be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained. And the more you know God, the more you will know his holy love. And the more you know his holy love, the more you want to walk with him. Because there's nothing like it else on earth. And the more you know his holy love and you want to be with him, the more you will end up looking like him. See, the Bible not only conforms and confronts our thinking and our actions and our motives. Every time we sit with this holy text, it calls us, it invites us. Jesus, through his spirit, by the command of the Father, commands Christians to be prepared to serve. You want to know if the kingdom of God is among our church? Service is at the center of a God-given kingdom. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the great privileges of becoming a Christian is we get to serve a world that desperately wants it and doesn't want it all at once. We are never saved by our good works. We are saved by Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, by God's call alone, by the Spirit's presence alone. But good works are the living sign that we are in relationship with this God. 
And as we know his lavish love and as we personally experience his good works towards us, we will do the same for our broken world. What did Jesus say in John 15, 16? (laughs) You didn't choose me. No, I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in the name of my Father, he'll give you. No, you think you chose me? You couldn't even find me on a map. You really think that you could find me in your broken condition? No, don't you understand? You were so spiritually dead. I had to walk into your life, whether you were 3, 14, 20, or 80, whether you remember the moment or not, and I'm the one who said, come back to life, and you did. I chose you because I love you. And when I called you, not only did I call you to encounter my love and my holiness, I have called you because I have appointed you to start bearing fruit that's going to last. I want you to serve the world and serve broken human beings because the only thing that lasts into eternity is what is done for me. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 10, where God's handiwork. We're God's display. We're God's great art piece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, this is why the spiritual practice of study matters so much to you. It is why this practice matters so much to your family, why this practice matters to your friends, why this practice matters to our church. It matters that we're all doing this. It matters to our region. Why? Because not only when we sit under the word of God in humility and expectation will we know who God is and be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness. No, no. Don't you see? At the end of that tunnel is something called freedom. Because we live in a world of lies. We believe lies, we tell lies, the demonic perpetuate lies, and our culture, our culture is built much of the time on lies. And yet Jesus comes in John 8, 32 and says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Say it loud. Set us free. If you want freedom, you need to study God's truth. Truth is the only thing that kills a lie at the heart. Now this is so significant I love what Richard Foster wrote so long ago. He said, good feelings won't free us. Ecstatic experiences will not free us. Getting high on Jesus will not free us. Without knowledge of truth, we will not be free. Calvin Miller said, mystics without study are only spiritual romantics who want a relationship without the effort. Oh, snap, let me say it again. Let me say it again because this is so important. Mystics without study are only spiritual romantics who want relationship without the effort. Now let me stop for a moment and let's all have a family time. At this church, at this moment in our history, we are experiencing so much we have never seen before. Since 2011, we have had genuine signs of renewal. Even last week, two weeks ago, I had a woman come up to me who's been in our church since Steeple Hill In tears in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, John, I've met Jesus again. She said, I've been faithful to this church. And I'm in so much, she says, I'm in so much pain, but I've had a new encounter with Jesus. You've been praying for revival and I dismissed you every time you got up at the pulpit. I said, yeah, blah, blah, John, you're just making up stories. But then Jesus came in my pain and met me afresh and I'm being renewed and revived. And so it's your fault. (laughs) 
And all those people are praying, but it's real. And then she said, I wish this on everyone in our church. Amen. We are experiencing so much we've never, people are having visions of Christ. People are having visions, literal visions of what's going to happen in this building and other buildings. People are seeing friends encounter Christ. More baptisms. Gifts are being used in a way that has never happened. But let me declare this in the middle or the beginning of the middle of this experience. As we pray for renewal and we are expectant of God's revival among us in this region and awakening because he has promised it. We are going to be people of scripture. Because as the experiences get bigger and wider, we must always go back to the Holy Scriptures and say, Lord, what are you saying? In revival, revivals go sideways when this no longer is at the center and this is no longer preached. As we expect God's more, we are not just going to be spiritual romantics. We're going to be spiritual romantics and we're going to do the hard work of study. Are you going to join me in that? Because that's what I'm going to do. That is our expectation. And so, Paul says to us, if you're going to know God, you must know this. In his major theological work, the book of Romans, he calls us in the most robust of manners to encounter God. And he says in Romans 12 too, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see the challenge? It confronts the elephant in the church. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Well, what's the pattern of this world? Since Jesus' birth at Christmas, which is 19 Fridays away from now, I just want to say that, at birth, (laughs) from that moment forward, we've been living in the last times. They didn't start in 1950, just so you know. Since Jesus' birth. And this epoch of history is fallen. We live in a world that, yes, God is involved, and yet God is very clear that we live in a world where human beings are separated from God because of sin. The God of of this world, Satan, blinds people so they cannot confront or see the gospel. We live, no matter your cultural background, every culture either exalts religion or secularism as the answer. Neither are the answer. And he says, do not conform. Do not look like that, but rather be transformed, be transfigured. where we get our word metamorphosis from. It is the promise that we will look more like the one we have met, Jesus Christ. Tadpole to frog, caterpillar to butterfly. The idea presumes a lifelong process. And as you have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, and as you study and meditate on God's word, his scriptures, and as you participate in Christian community, it is here we are transformed. Let me preach this without shame this morning, without a vital relationship with God the Father, Son, and Spirit, one true living God, and without immersing ourselves in the Holy Scriptures, and without intentionally doing Christian community, whether you feel like it or not, your transformation, our church transformation will be slowed or stalled, even though you are saved. Be transformed. Be renewed. Sit under God's word. Let God's word form not only how you think, but how you act. Paul, writing to another church in Philippi, was writing about joy. It was in the last part of his life. He was sitting in a jail cell. He knew he probably wouldn't get out. He wasn't sure at points. But he was writing to a church that was now under persecution. I think we've all today, this week, these last few months, seen what persecution really looks like. 
right, of Christians in Iraq especially as another example. And he's writing to a group of people who are being hunted for their faith. And this is what he wrote in Philippians 4.8. Let me read it to you. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Now, you've got to catch this this morning, and this is so important, especially if you've grown up in the church. If you're disconnecting, connect back at this moment. See, what he says here is, says, finally, as things are getting worse, Philippi Church, C4, whatever is true, noble, right, and pure, all of those words are theological words. All of those words are, you better know the scriptures. You better know doctrine. You better know what God's morality is. They are words of theology. They are what scholars call specific revelation. They are God's expression to us. But the other words, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, are not theological words. They are words that scholars call common grace. Finding the fingerprints of God in your friends. And in world and in art and in culture. See, Paul understood what was going to happen. As things get more difficult for Christians, we always will run, close the doors, just read the Bible and say everything is bad, bad. No, he says, don't run. I want you not only to study my written word, God says, I want you to study my world because my world may be marred, but it is not utterly depraved. And there is good, my thumbprints, God says, are still in art, in culture, and you can even find the echoes of me in those who don't know me. Don't you dare close the gates. See, we find a problem in the church where we think that study is just this. It's ultimately this, but it's not just this. Paul commands us, you look for excellence and praiseworthy things and noble things everywhere and celebrate them. Why? Because God is still at work because he still says, though my creation is marred, it is still what? Good. We as Christians must understand that God is on the move. And we are called to study the world We are called to study the world around us, the beauty around us, and ultimately his word in us. Whenever you learn or receive or heard from me or seen in me, you put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. If you want peace in your Christian life, one thing we all just need to admit is peace is connected to obedience. I think Jesus' half-brother James said it best, right? Don't just be hearers of the word, but what? Anyone want to say it loud? But doers of the word. See, you've got to understand that the Spirit of God, which is at the heart, by the way, of Philippians and joy, is giving us peace. But peace comes when we obey. And obedience only comes if you know what you're supposed to obey, which involves study. You say, well, okay, John, thanks for that. But honestly, I look at this and I get completely overwhelmed. Like, where do I start? And some of you have way bigger Bibles than this, so it gets even more, you're way spiritual, way more spiritual. Study Bibles, big serious, right? Um, And you ever had that experience where you look at this and go, like, do I just like, like, what what do I do? Well, let me share a few things because it's very important. This whole series, we've tried to be really helpful uh, after we define it. I remember being in my room, probably five or six years old, and it was a mess. I was a boy who destroyed his room. Man, do I know what that's like now. Anyway, um, (laughs) 
Uh, anyway, so I, I remember standing at the door of my room, and my mom was standing, but it's one of those vivid childhood memories, and she said, John, clean your room. And I said, I don't want to. She said, do it. Okay, yeah, so, the, you know, and I'm in the room, I'm alone, and I remember this feeling of overwhelmed. I was looking all around the room. I was looking all around the room. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where to start. I, I mean, I honestly wanted to, uh, I wanted to do this. I didn't know. My mom came back and was like, why haven't you done this? And I said, mom, I, I, ju- mm, I, mm, I don't know where to start. She said, start with that. I said, okay. And suddenly, slowly, surely, my room was cleaned. I want everyone to breathe in this church and say, you are not going to know this in 3.2 seconds. The problem with our culture is what? We have more information than we have ever had in history. The deep problem in our society is this. We have so much information, no time to process it, so we're gluttons, and we have no wisdom left in our culture. More information doesn't make you good. Wisdom produces godliness. Information just makes you spiritually or intellectually fat. And so we need to stop and we need to say, okay, how am I going to do this for the long haul? Well, Richard Foster gives us four things, and I'll just start with these. He says, you know what? If you're serious about studying the Bible or anything, the first thing you got to do is rinse, rinse and repeat, right? Like, you got to repeat. You got to repeat. You got to repeat. You got to take time over a long haul to keep reading and thinking through the same things. You don't believe this? Just talk to any advertiser in our church, they'll tell you it's true. Why do you know so many things? Because you hear them repeated all the time. If you are not just on a regular basis putting yourself and repeating and understanding, you may not get everything, but over time it's like muscle. It's like walking into a gym and going, I will have the body in one exercise class. They're like, really, really, really? That's fat and dope. Really? Like, you know, like, like honestly, no. Like, we would never expect that physically. Why do we expect that spiritually? Repetition over a lifetime of reading the scriptures will help. I love David Watson who wrote so long ago, as I spend time chewing over the endless assurances and promises to be found in the Bible, so my faith in the living God grew stronger and held me in his safe hands. God's word to us, especially his word spoken by his spirit through the Bible, is the very ingredients that feed our faith. And if we feed our souls regularly on God's word several times each day, we should become robust spiritually, just as we feed on ordinary food several times each day, and we become robust physically. He says, you've got to repeat. The second thing you've got to do is concentrate. We live in a culture that has lost the art of concentration. And if you really want to know something, you have to turn something else off. Let me say that again. If you want to know something, something else has to go. You cannot do both. And so he says you've got to repeat over the long haul. You've got to give times of concentration. You have to reflect. You have to ask, what is this saying to me? But here's the most significant thing. We need humility when we read the scriptures. Now, please hear this. So many of us say to God, you're never speaking to me. But you walk to the Bible like this saying to him, speak and maybe I'll listen. The approach of one who is in love with God is not an arrogance that walks to the scriptures and says, I may listen to you. It is, oh God, what do you say? Do you see the difference? 
There is a humility when we walk into the throne room of God, and there must be a humility whether we're reading our little My Daily Bread or getting an Instagram update. Like You just have to stop and say, this is the word of God. I submit under it. Humility will allow your spiritual ears to explode open, and many of you who have not thought God has been speaking to you for years, you will finally hear him because you are willing to admit who he is, what this is, and what you are not. Humility is at the essence of reading Scripture because when you humble yourself before God, what? He will lift you up in due time. Richard Foster says you must reflect and you must concentrate and you must repeat and you must be humble. We're called to study, to know God's Word, to learn God's Word, to understand God's Word, to listen to God's Word, to obey God's Word. By sitting under God's word, we meet Jesus. We will always encounter Jesus when we open the Bible. And we'll be transformed by him if we obey. So let me give you some help. I want to give you two books, one class, and two methods. If you're taking notes, this is like a lecture moment here. Two books, one class, two methods. Because the goal here is not just to have a moment at the end. The goal here is to help you. So there are two books. The first book I recommend all the time is How to Study the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Let me just say it again. How to Study the Bible for All It's Worth. This book... I give out like candy. If you really want to know how to deal with this right, this book should be bought by every single person in this church. It is accessible. It's easy. It's not just for scholars. It will help you. How do I pick a commentary? Where did all these translations come from? How do I deal with different styles? In this? But if you want to really know, the book is called how, uh, how to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. The other book that's out there is called God's Grand or Big Story. It's just come out. And it is a book, and, and it's on the sheet we gave you as you came in today. It is the book that shows you from what's going on from Genesis to Revelation. So many of you love Scripture, and so many of you come to church, and you'll hear me preach, let's say, on Ephesians, and you get so much out of it, but you can't connect the dot to how Ephesians fits into God's biggest picture. So this book helps you see what God has been, is, is and will always be doing. It's his big picture. So two amazing books to help you. One class, we're about to launch a discipleship path to help us all become more like Jesus Christ. And one thing through a class-oriented experience we're going to do, a Connect class, is twice a year in this church, we're going to offer a course called How to Read Your Bible. And it's just going to be open to anyone. And at any time you need a refresher or you want to start, we're going to have that starting this year. Because we want you and equipping you to really deal with this right. Because let me tell you, a lot of people become crazy land when they deal with this wrong. Agreed? This has to be dealt with right. So there's two books, one class. And then as you came in today, there was a yellow thing in your bulletins. It will be attached online for you as a PDF. If you want to pull that out from your bulletins. Simply what we did is we just gave you two simple methods. One method, which we do in our connect groups, and and you can read more about it. There's some resources there. It's an inductive Bible study method, how you just ask questions when you read Scripture. And the other one is called Lectio Divina, how do you pray through Scripture. And so what you do is you can read it, understand it, and then pray through it. So you've got two, two books, two methods, and one class. Now all that to say, let me end, let me end here. Let me start all the way back at the beginning. There's an elephant in the room of many people in the church, and it doesn't need to be that way. 
And if we take time regularly with intention and humility to look for God's fingerprints all around us, and as we sit and understand and know the Holy Scriptures, we'll be transformed, and the elephant won't be there much anymore. But I need you to close with a caution. Why read the Bible? No, really. Can I just have everyone's attention for a second? Why read the Bible? Why do this practice? If it's just to know more information, it's going to be a failure. So many of us know so much about the Bible, but it has not radically affected our life. It's spiritual gluttony. If you approach the Bible just to learn how to be moral and good, you're also going to miss the point. So here's how I'd like to end. I'd like everyone to close their eyes. And I know half of you won't want to do it because I just told you to do it, so I'm requesting it. Okay, would everyone close their eyes, please? You online, unless you're driving, close your eyes. Just take a moment. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to hear the Psalms. And here's what I want you to hear as I end. I want you to hear the heart cry of different authors from the Psalms about study. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate it on it all day long. Psalm 48, within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Psalm 145, I will meditate on your wonderful works. Psalm 130, my soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Would you open your eyes and hear these words? When we study God's word, church, it is guaranteed encounter. We love the scriptures. We study the Bible. We immerse ourselves in a holy writ. Not because this is God. No, this is God's word to us. We don't worship this book. Can I say that again? We don't worship this book. We worship the true living word that gave us the written word. We rush to this place and we sit at this place and we read this individually as families and as community, whether we feel him close or not, because we know that the one that we love, the one that loves us will be found sitting right beside us when we read his word. You want to sing, we've sung about encounter this morning. Let me say this, open the scriptures and Jesus will be right there. The heart of the Psalms we just read show us why we'd want to study Because when we do it, we will meet Jesus himself. And through his spirit, we will be made more like God. Remember what Jesus declares about himself. He says, I am gentle. I am humble. And I will teach you. And I will rebuke you. And I will correct you. And I will train you. And I will free you. I will deal with your motives. I will make you and you and you and you more like me. Oh, church, let me say this. Study God's world, his beautiful, awesome world, and study God's written word. For when we do this, suddenly over time, we will look up and realize the elephant is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and then the elephant will be gone. Let me say this. I want Jesus in my room, and I want Jesus in your room.
And I want Jesus in this church. And I want Jesus in this region more than any elephant that stamps and chokes out what God is trying to do. So let me just say, love the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Make time for the scriptures. Because this is God's greatest gift other than his son to the church. This is the place where God comes and says, you will become like me, my son. And when you become like my son, the world will see this is not fake, but real. And then they will say, how do I go and entreat him with you? If you want evangelism, renewal, revival, awakening, love the holy scriptures. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I would ask, Spirit of God, that you would give us ability and desire for the scriptures in a way that is not human. I pray you'd lead us in all truth. I pray you'd deliver this church from bad thinking, heresy, bad thinking. You'd confront us. We invite it. You rebuke us. You train us. You empower us. And you free us. We want to say at this moment, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you decided not only to show us who you are, but how to live. Help us, O oh God, to love the scriptures. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.